If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I have a dream. One day... This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Because we intend to fire our people up so much until if they can't have their equal share in the house, they'll burn it down. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice. Welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, where we're charting some of the key moments in the transformative history of the US civil rights movement, the fight for equality that dominated mid-20th century America, with a legacy that continues to shape the world around us today. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and in this six-part series, I'm speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined this struggle for racial equality. In each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and consider its place in the wider fight for civil rights. In our last episode, we travel back to Mississippi in 1955, when the brutal lynching of a black 14-year-old boy called Emmett Till and the eventual acquittal of his murderers horrified America and spurred civil rights activists into action. 
In this episode, we're staying in 1955, but moving about 200 miles east to Montgomery, Alabama, to investigate one of the most iconic episodes of the US civil rights movement, when Rosa Parks, a 42-year-old black woman trying to get home after a long shift at work, refused to give up her seat on the bus for a white passenger. Jean Thea Harris, distinguished professor at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York and the author of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, tells the story of the iconic Montgomery bus boycott. And it begins before Rosa Parks even stepped on the bus. On March 27, 1955, longtime activist Rosa Parks attends a packed mass meeting in Montgomery. She has gone to hear the organizer in the Emmett Till case. So Emmett Till was the 14-year-old Chicago boy who goes to Mississippi to visit his uncle over the summer and is lynched. And the speaker, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, has come to Montgomery to bring the bad news that despite all of the organizing and attention that actually gets an indictment of the two men who killed Till, those two men have been acquitted. And on top of that, just the the past week, another kind of voting rights activist has been brutally beaten. And Rosa Parks is there, and she has been an activist for 20 years by this point. And the Till case had gotten more attention than any case she'd worked on, and still the two men had walked free. And she's angry that night, and she's sad that night. And four days later, on December 1st, 1955, she finishes work. She works at Montgomery Fair, which is Montgomery's biggest department store. And it's a segregated department store, which means that Black people can shop there, but they cannot try on clothes. And Mrs. Parks works in the men's tailor shop. So that means that she spends her days tailoring white men's suits. And she leaves work and she sees a bus, but it's too crowded. So she lets it pass. She goes to the drugstore and she gets on the bus somewhere around 5.30 at night. The bus driver is James Blake. And Mrs. Parks had had trouble with him before. One of the practices some Montgomery bus drivers insisted on was that Black people would have to pay in the front, but then get off the bus and reboard in the back. And sometimes they would drive the bus away and leave people. And Rosa Parks refused to do that. And in 1943, James Blake had thrown her off the bus when she refused to reboard. And she'd been thrown off other Montgomery buses for this very practice. So that night she gets on the bus and she sits in the middle section. So Montgomery's buses were segregated, which means the front section was reserved for white people, the back section was reserved for black people, and then there's the middle. And the middle is what she would describe as sort of a no man's land. Black people were entitled to sit there, but on the whim of the driver could be asked to move. Three stops after she gets on, the bus fills and one white man is left standing. And by the terms of Alabama segregation, all of the people. So she's sitting next to a black man and then across the aisle there are two black women. So all four of these riders will have to get up so one white man can sit down. And the bus driver sees it and he he tells them to move and she says the first time he asks, no one moves. And then the second time he asks, he gets a little more angry and aggressive and he says, you all better make it light on yourselves. 
And she says, reluctantly, the other three get up to move. And she says she thinks about Emmett Till. She thinks about her grandfather, who had sat out at night in 1919 to protect their family home from Klan violence. She says she thinks about how getting up wouldn't make it light on themselves as a people, and she refuses. In some ways, in an act of further determination, she slides over to the window. She was sitting in the seat next to the aisle. She slides over to the window to, to see what's going to happen next. Blake says, I can have you arrested. And she says, you may do that. And so Blake gets off the bus to go call the police. I should mention that Blake and all Montgomery bus drivers are armed. So he has a gun and he will return with two police officers who also have guns. People on the bus are nervous. People are grumbling. Some people get off the bus. The police officers get on the bus and she says she hears them talking to Blake and they don't want to arrest her. Perhaps because we are now in 1955 and the potential for a legal case is much stronger after the Brown decision. The Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 dealt a heavy blow to the legality of segregation, as the US Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. Although this specifically applied to schools, this milestone ruling threatened to bring the whole system of segregation tumbling down. After all, why was segregation constitutional on a bus if it wasn't in the classroom? All the activists needed was a test case to put to the courts. Blake wants her arrested. And so the two police officers come back and one of them says to her, you know, why didn't you move? And she says back, why do you push us around? And he says, I don't know, but the law is the law and you're under arrest. And she doesn't want them touching her. She gets up on her own. One of them takes her purse and her bag and they exit the bus and they take her to jail. Now, meanwhile, someone on the bus goes to tell Edie Nixon. Edie Nixon is a longtime NAACP activist, one of Montgomery's other most stalwart activists, to tell him what's happened. And he calls down to the station to see what's happened and they won't tell him. And so... He calls a white lawyer, one of the few white families in town who is supportive of civil rights, Clifford Durr. Mrs. Parks also sewed for the Durr family on the side. And Clifford Durr is able to find out that Mrs. Parks has been arrested on a segregation charge. And they go to get the money to bail her out. They finally let her have a phone call. She calls her husband. Her mom answers the phone and is terrified. Have they beat you? Mrs. Parks says no. Put Raymond on. And Raymond says, I'll come right down. But but she knows he's won't, he won't be able to come right down. He will have to go get a bail bondsman because the Parks family are working class. And so about 9.30 or so, both the Durs and Nixon and Raymond end up both coming to the jail to bail her out. And they go back to the Parks' apartment because once Nixon sees that Mrs. Parks hasn't been hurt, he's kind of delighted because here is the test case they've been waiting for. She's 42, she's active in her church, and she's a longtime community and political activist. So perhaps most importantly, they know she's brave and can withstand the pressure that will come. And later that night, she decides she will go forth with this, and she calls a young lawyer in town by the name of Fred Gray and asks him to represent her. Gray is 25. 
And Gray, even later that night, calls the head of a Black women's organization in Montgomery called the Women's Political Council that had also been agitating around the bus. And it is the Women's Political Council in the middle of the night that decides to call for a one-day boycott on Monday when Mrs. Parks will be arraigned in court. The head of the Women's Political Council is Joanne Robinson. She's a professor at Alabama State College, and she will go to the college in the middle of the night and with the help of a colleague and two students run off 35,000 leaflets saying another woman has been arrested on the bus, boycott on Monday. Uh, But they're all nervous that weekend. Rosa Parks is nervous. Nixon is nervous. Will people actually stay off the bus? And they do. And it is that night, that Monday night, that they decide to change that one-day boycott into a long-term boycott. Now, the city's fighting this they start a carpool system and they're giving 10 to 15,000 rides a day and they're, the police are giving tons of tickets. Then they arrest 89 boycott leaders. So the most famous mugshot picture of Rosa Parks is actually from that second arrest. And they file a separate case into federal court. And that is what will go to the Supreme Court. And over a year after the boycott begins, the Supreme Court will rule in favor of the boycott and Montgomery's buses will be desegregated on December 21st, 1956. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Today, this boycott is one of the most celebrated episodes in the entire U.S. civil rights movement, and Rosa Parks is a household name. But why was it that the bus, in particular, was such a symbol of segregation when the policy of separate but equal extended to every area of life in the American South? Mia Bay, professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Travelling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance, told me how transport segregation had always been a flashpoint in American history. 
direct action protesting transportation segregation goes back to the very first forms of the kind of transportation that is not simply walking on your own feet. People protested on stagecoaches. They protested on steamships. There were big brawls in which one, you know, Black men were actually physically thrown off stagecoaches, railroads. Um, So it was a sort of a long tradition where people tried to claim rights. And I think there's a number of different reasons for it. One is that it is sort of inescapable. Um, There's certain forms of segregation that you can kind of avoid. Like if you don't want to experience segregation at restaurants or theaters, you don't necessarily have to go to them. You can go to ones that are reserved for Black people. But when it comes to transportation, things like the, you know, the national railway system, you don't have your own alternative. You can't, you have to use them uh, no matter who you are, especially in the sort of golden age of railroads before cars. So everyone in America, all African-Americans have some experience with things like the Jim Crow car and its humiliations, and you can't buy your way out of it. It doesn't really matter how much money you have. So it's a cross-class issue, which ma- which makes it important. And then it's also very unpredictable. It's a, it's a complex system. The Southern states have segregation laws. The Northern states don't. Practices vary from state to state. Laws vary from state to state. So it's a system of rules that you're really supposed to follow, but they're almost impossible to follow correctly. Nobody can really know all the different things they're supposed to do or what's going to you know, whether they're going to be accepted one place and not another place sort of in advance. So people people often run afoul of the whole system of transportation segregation, not because they necessarily set out to uh, start direct action. Sometimes they simply don't know that in this particular place, this is what's going to happen. By the time buses are invented, which is not until not invented, but become widely used, which is not until the 20s and 30s, there's been... Jim Crow Railroad segregation for many years. And when buses start in the South in particular, it is really um, understood that, you know, there, there has to be a sort of way to separate Blacks from whites on buses and also a way to assign Blacks to what it, what is the worst seat on the bus. And in fact, there is a worst seat on the bus, especially in the early days of buses. It is the seats at the back Buses didn't have springs. Uh, they had a seat over the wheel that was often much higher than the other seats. So if you sat in it, your feet wouldn't t- touch the ground. So from the very beginning, they would relegate Black travelers to these very back seats, the back bench, the seat over the wheel, all these kind of unpleasant seats that people wouldn't sit in voluntarily. And when African-Americans resisted these seating patterns, which was almost immediately, they would... Um, they started to pass laws, making them mandatory when they sort of began to regulate buses. As Mia mentioned, the history of resisting segregation in the American transport system stretches back much further than 1955. And in Montgomery itself, there was a stream of black riders who had resisted bus segregation before Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is not the first person in Montgomery to challenge bus segregation. And there's sort of a steady trickle in that decade before, sort of from World War II on, of Montgomerians who will challenge bus segregation. Uh, One example in 1944 is a Montgomery woman by the name of Viola White refuses to give up her seat on the bus, decides to pursue a legal challenge. In response, police rape her daughter. And then 
the state uses yet another maneuver, which is they just tie up her appeal in state court and it never comes like to court. And so Viola White will die before, before her appeal is ever heard. And then we have 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. And that puts us in a different legal climate. That case deals with schools, but it's basically said segregation can never be equal, separation can never be equal. And so it has the potential to be used as also a case against bus segregation. And so that very year, two teenagers, first in March, Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin refuses to give up her seat on the bus, is arrested and decides to press her case. For a while, we see a kind of movement Black leaders take a petition to the city. The city makes promises they don't keep. And then the judge in Colvin's case does something strategic, which is Colvin is actually arrested on three charges, a segregation charge, but the police put their hands all over her. She's a little 15-year-old and they're just kind of... And so she struggles and they then arrest her on a disturbing the peace charge and assaulting an officer charge. And so the judge strategically drops the segregation charge in Colvin's case. He only convicts her on the assaulting an officer charge. So it makes it much harder to be a test case around segregation. So we have this sort of trickle of bus resistors. That accumulation is crucial to why people are at a breaking point with Rosa Parks. I think you don't get people to boycott Rosa Parks if Claudette Colvin doesn't do what Claudette Colvin does. As well as this accumulation of outrage that had long been building around bus segregation, what was it about Rosa Parks in particular that meant she was seen as the right person for a test case? We have Rosa Parks as a longtime activist, and so people trust her and people can see themselves in her. I think one of the things that's interesting about Rosa Parks is she is a working class person. Uh, They live in the Cleveland Court Projects. Her husband is a barber at the Air Force Base. She's working as an assistant in the department store. So she's solidly working class, and it's working class Black Montgomery that will fuel the boycott. So she has that base there. She's active in her church, right? She's very active in her church. And people know her. And I think part of trusting that if you're going to build a movement around someone, that they won't flinch. And so one of the interesting things is I think part of the reason that kind of a movement galvanizes around Parks is her kind of longtime community and political activism. But then because of the Cold War, that political history is a liability. So we see that political history get backgrounded. Once we're a couple weeks into the boycott, you start to see King and other ministers. You start to see the black press. You start to see even Parks herself. Now they're referring to as a good Christian seamstress. Because in the Cold War, we want to remember that organizations like the NAACP, which Parks has been a longtime activist in, will get red baited, right, as potentially communist foreign organizations. Six months into the boycott, the NAACP will be outlawed in the state of Alabama, So we see that history, even though I would argue it's crucial to why people trust her, kind of be backgrounded in how they're talking about her as we get into the boycott. While Parks' arrest sparked the boycott, sustaining it for 381 days was a whole community effort. Jean credits the boycott's organisation as one of the key reasons for its success. So I think we have this idea of just people walking, and certainly people walked. But what sustains a year-long boycott is this massive organization where they set up this 
incredible carpool system and 40 pickup stations around Montgomery. And at the height of it, they're giving 10 to 15,000 rides a day. This is a massively organized system and the city goes after it, right? The city, they're giving tons of tickets. They're harassing them. They have to move the pickup stations because of this police harassment. But it, that organization really helps to keep it going. Then the city makes a deep miscalculation. So they arrest 89 boycott leaders on this old anti-boycott, anti-syndicalism law. And it's that where you really start to see national media pay attention to this, this overreach. This, I mean, it's the biggest indictment, in, I think, in Alabama history at that point. And, and that's when we see the New York Times start to pay attention to this. One of the things that ha- we can see in the Montgomery Bus Boycott, we can see in other parts of the civil rights movement, is sort of being in action changes what you think is possible. And so the, the level of courage, the level of what you begin to demand changes. For instance, in the first weeks of the boycott, they're not demanding full desegregation on the bus. They're demanding first come, first serve, respectful treatment, and black bus drivers. And the city just digs in. In Baton Rouge, in 1953, there had been a similar boycott and the city changes and basically makes limited changes and the boycott ends there. But because the city doesn't make limited changes and then doubles down in February and thinks, okay, we can arrest people and that will scare people. And in fact, that's the moment where people step further and we see the demands change to full desegregation of the bus. The activist demands were met with the US Supreme Court decision of 1956. Before we move on, one name has been largely absent from the conversation so far, and it's a name that's now synonymous with the civil rights movement. I'm talking, of course, about Martin Luther King Jr. And next episode, we'll be focusing on his mammoth contribution to the struggle. But it's worth noting that he first comes to political prominence here as a 26-year-old preacher who had recently moved to Montgomery with his wife and newborn child. I mean, we see Martin Luther King kind of step into this role of leadership and then kind of blossom. Partly, they pick him to head the MIA in part because there are members of Montgomery's sort of more middle-class Black community that don't want Nixon to be the head of it. And so King is a choice because he doesn't have the same kinds of enemies. And so in some ways, to prevent Nixon, Rufus Lewis suggests King. And so King comes to head the Montgomery Improvement Association and that first mass meeting that Monday night, he's nervous. And then if you've ever listened to that speech, you can see that the spirit is moving in him and that he begins to talk about history, what history will show in Montgomery. And so one of the things about watching King in that year is we see this 26-year-old kind of step into increasingly this role, this prophetic role. While the Montgomery bus boycott is undoubtedly a pivotal point in the story of the US civil rights movement, it was only one thread in the rich tapestry of direct action. Activists used forms of action such as sit-ins, which simply involved going somewhere where segregation law meant that you weren't supposed to go. They also used really complex forms of direct action like the Freedom Rides, which involved having multiracial groups of people travel on segregated buses. Um, And then there's, of course, protests, picketing. 
virtually everything they could think of. And some things during the civil rights movement that, you know, might not seem like direct action became direct action simply because they involved doing things that authorities didn't want them to do, like bringing people to register to vote. So it was a movement that was really trying to claim, in some cases, rights that people already had or should have had. And direct action was about actually just actually claiming them and doing the thing that you're, you know, that you had a right to do. Whatever form direct action took, it was always a community effort. On the ground organising created a civil rights movement out of what might otherwise have been a handful of abstract Supreme Court decisions. While we tend to focus on individuals like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr., there's another equally important story of community self-advocates like the Montgomery Improvement Association or groups like SNCC and CORE, who created possibilities far beyond what the federal government could envision. And many of these groups embrace non-violent philosophies. I think it was very important from a strategic point of view. There was already a lot of violence in the Jim Crow South. And one of the things that the protesters would encounter in doing things like sitting in and going on freedom rides is they would encounter violence. Um, So the fact that the protesters were committed to nonviolence could keep things from being coming an ugly brawl. It also meant that um, it was also from a sort of public relations point of view, one of the most effective parts of the protests. I mean, it's sort of sad to think about this, but protests were often very effective because of the contrast between the protesters who were, who were, you know, sort of determinedly nonviolent and the people who, the sort of mobs who came out and beat them up. So nonviolence was important to the success of the movement. There are so many examples of direct action that we could zero in on here, like the sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, which began when four black college students sat at a Woolworths lunch counter, which was only meant for white customers, and refused to leave their seats until they were served. This protest sparked the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC, and ballooned to such an extent that Woolworths stopped its policy of segregation in its southern stores. However, the protest I want to focus on here is the Freedom Rides, led by another group of student activists, the Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE. This was intended to take direct action across state lines, Six of them, in fact, as a multiracial group of riders planned a journey from Virginia through to Louisiana. But the Deep South had other plans. Yes, the Freedom Rides were organised by the Congress of Racial Equality, which was a sort of pacifist organisation that had previously organised things like pickets. It has roots that date back to the World War II era, It had actually had an earlier um, freedom ride called the Journey of Reconciliation. And both of these rides were designed to try to claim rights to travel interstate on buses without traveling segregated that had already been approved by the courts. Both of them sort of came after judicial decisions that affirmed or in some cases reaffirmed that Black travelers did not have to sit at the back of the bus The one that immediately came before the Freedom Ride of 1961 with the Boyton case in which the Supreme Court ruled that um, on the basis of a a suit brought by a student traveler, they ruled that 
black travelers traveling interstate, you know, had to be admitted in white waiting rooms. They had to be allowed to eat in white, what were what had previously been whites only facilities. But what had been happening with these rulings, not just the Boynton case, but also the Morgan case that had ruled against segregation on interstate buses, Southern states had been ignoring them or they, they, or they would get the carriers to sort of institute their own rules. So it might not be Virginia state law that said you had to sit at the back of the bus, but all of a sudden the bus company had a rule about it. So there were all these sort of dodges. So the Freedom Ride was an attempt to sort of just claim the rights that had been pretty clearly outlined in the Boynton case. With, the, with that case, it was clear that the Supreme Court was rejecting segregation on interstate buses and segregation in bus stations and in, in facilities uh, like cafeterias and bus stations. So there should be no reason why group of travelers, black and white, shouldn't be able to travel together and sit wherever they wanted to on the bus. And this was basically the plan with the Freedom Rides. And just how many protests at the time were interracial, as the Freedom Rides were? No, it was not all that common at the time. The Congress of Racial Equality, which was formed in Chicago, had always been an interracial group that may have in some ways been a more sort of northern trend than others. But um, in the South, you know, interracial action was not that common and certainly not during this time period sort of widespread at all. Going back to the story, the Freedom Riders experienced such extreme violence that the US president himself, John F. Kennedy, had to get involved. So the Freedom Rides took this group of interracial travelers from Washington, D.C. The planned destination was New Orleans. They never got there. They encountered such intense resistance in Alabama, which was where they were. There were two different groups of Freedom Riders. One was traveling via trailways, which was one of the major bus companies, and the other was using the other major bus company, Greyhound. Um, So they had a variety of different experiences, but one group of travelers arrived at the bus station only to be sort of mobbed by a a group of white Klan members. Another uh, group of travelers had the experience of being chased out of town and having their bus bombed. By the time they got very far into Alabama. It had become a national crisis. The Kennedy administration was in there trying to kind of do something about what was happening to people. And they never got further than Mississippi because once they got to Jackson, they were put in jail. The question of what the Freedom Riders expected setting out is an interesting one. The journey of reconciliation, which they had done in the 1940s, hadn't gone into the Deep South, and it hadn't created the sort of level of chaos that the 1961 Freedom Rides did for a variety of reasons. I think one of which was that by the time you get to 1961, places, states like Alabama and Mississippi are deeply committed to segregation, like to resisting these challenges to segregation. There's been a rise of what Southerners are calling massive resistance. And you have politicians like George Wallace who campaigns on a sort of segregation now, segregation forever platform. So 
pretty early on, they realize that things are going to be pretty terrible and uh, there's real pressure on them to turn back and quit. And in fact, the original Freedom Riders at some point do uh, agree to sort of fly to Louisiana to sort of arrest the Freedom Ride. But at this point, a new group of Freedom Riders joins them and uh, people from the sit-ins in Nashville student nonviolent coordinating committee members who are like it's very who maintain that it's very important for the freedom rides to go on and are willing to sort of risk whatever it takes and there's people are injured and beaten quite badly in the freedom rides including people who are simply observing like journalists and um, at least one government official I mean, they did get to a point where the bus driver wouldn't even stay on the bus with them. At one point when they're stranded in Alabama, John F. Kennedy has to call Greyhound and like insist that they find a bus for the Freedom Riders because the guy who had been driving their bus was like, you know, I only have one life and I don't want to die. In the wake of so much violence, how successful were the Freedom Rides? I think the rides were very successful in, in a certain in a certain way. I mean, in terms of really doing something that previous transportation protests had not been able to do, which was to get the f- federal government to actually enforce its mandates, to enforce the court's mandates around segregation transportation. The Freedom Rides built up to such a crisis because even though Mississippi was putting everyone in jail in Jackson, the Freedom Rides didn't stop. In fact, because they were widely publicized and attracted a lot of sympathy, concern, and commitment from activists, they continued. People came from all over to travel south and be put in jail in Jackson. Um, It was a time when Kennedy was very concerned about the U.S.'s public image. He was sort of in a crisis with the Soviet Union. So eventually a deal was brokered in which the Kennedy administration would finally actually do something to actually desegregate buses and bus stations. And what it did was work with the Interstate Commerce Commission to make it absolutely clear that there wasn't going to be segregation on buses. And for the first time, it also enforced it. They sent out Justice Department officials and kind of look to make sure that the signs went down, look to make sure that people were actually traveling in a desegregated way. And that was the end of having a sort of formal system of segregation on buses and and on trains. As we near the end of this episode, I want to finish by returning to Rosa Parks. It can be tempting to remember her as frozen in time in 1955, at the moment in which she refused to give up her seat, a decision that spurred on the struggle for racial equality and catapulted the careers of civil rights leaders who soon eclipsed her. But we should be wary of viewing her in this way. Even though the boycott comes to a successful end, the Parks still can't find work. They're still getting credible death threats. And so eight months after the boycott ends, they make the hard decision that they have to leave and they move to Detroit where her brothers and her cousin are living. And she will describe Detroit as the northern promised land that wasn't. And while some of the more public signs of segregation are gone, like on buses, the systems of segregation in housing, in schools, job discrimination, policing, 
they leave in Montgomery, they find again in Detroit. And so Rosa Parks will spend the second half of her life, more of her life in Detroit, fighting the racism of the North. And just like she had in Montgomery in terms of pressing against segregation there, she gets to work pressing against segregation in Detroit. And as I mentioned, one of the things that she does in 64 is she volunteers on this there's going to be a newly redrawn district, and it seems possible to send a second Black congressman from Michigan to the Congress, and she is supporting an upstart radical lawyer, John Conyers. Uh, and Conyers is an early opponent of the war in Vietnam, as is Mrs. Parks. Conyers is a longtime labor activist, as is Mrs. Parks, and he will win that primary by about 40 votes. And he will credit her partly with that win. She gets King. King doesn't do any of this. He's not endorsing anyone, but he can't say no to her. And so she gets King to come and do an appearance with Conyers, which Conyers partially credits with winning that primary. And then he wins the general. So Rosa Parks is hired by Conyers to do kind of constituent work in his Detroit office. So she's sort of on the ground doing community work as a kind of growing Black power movement unfolds both in Detroit and across the country. The Black power movement gained traction in the 60s and 70s and encouraged Black Americans to empower themselves economically and create their own political and cultural institutions. We'll be discussing it in more detail in episode five of this series. And she's taking part in all sorts of things. In 1963, she meets Malcolm X for the first time. He's come to Detroit to give what we now call message to the grassroots speech, uh, to, to address the grassroots leadership conference. He puts out the word, he wants to meet Rosa Parks. When I was doing interviews for the book, Peter Bailey, who was one of his lieutenants in the Organization of Afro-American Unity, told me that Malcolm talked about two people in the civil rights movement with awe, and that was Rosa Parks and Fannie Lou Hamer. So they meet for the first time in 63. She will see him for the last time in 65. He comes to, back to Detroit a, a, a week before he's assassinated. Uh, they have their longest conversation there. She's getting an award. He's speaking. She gets him to sign her program. She will say later that he is her personal hero. Uh, and I think one of the things to understand about Rosa Parks is she sees no contradiction in her tremendous love and admiration for Dr. King and her love of Malcolm X. She is mentored by Ella Baker, by Septima Clark. She's friends with Queen Mother Moore, with members of the Republic of New Africa. She visits the Black Panther Party School, right? Her politics are expansive, they're wide-ranging, and they're radical. So why is it that this Rosa Parks often gets overlooked? We start to see the kind of myth and kind of fable of Rosa Parks, a little bit similar to how we start to see the fable of King develop in the 80s and 90s as being useful to a kind of American storytelling. So the civil rights movement goes from being this like potentially un-American, dangerous, disliked by most Americans movement to the proof of American democracy. And so it becomes a way to narrate this like kind of narrative of progress, like we're just constantly getting better. And so King and Parks will become central to that narrative that, again, I think is central today to the ways that the civil rights movement figures now very prominently in how the United States talks about itself. But the way that the civil rights movement is portrayed is this very neutered, limited. And so she can't be a long-term, lifelong activist, right? It's just about this kind of moment on the bus that then we can put firmly in the past because bus segregation is over. 
obviously, if we're talking about school segregation, obviously, if we're talking about housing discrimination, if we're talking about police brutality, all things that Rosa Parks is an activist on, that's not over, right? So that's a more uncomfortable story. But if we're talking about bus segregation, and that's sort of how she gets honored when she dies, right? It's that this long ago injustice and this woman who'd been denied a seat on the bus is now in the Capitol, right? So it's a narrative of of progress. Next episode, we'll be travelling to 1963, when more than 250,000 people marched on Washington to demand jobs and freedom, and heard Martin Luther King Jr. deliver one of the most iconic speeches of the 20th century. We'll also be exploring his contribution to the movement more widely, and picking apart the real man from the myth. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Jean Theo Harris, Distinguished Professor at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York and the author of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And Mia Bay, Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Travelling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance. The historical consultant for this series is Adrian Lentz-Smith. Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who specialises in African-American history and 20th century history. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>